welcome to August 14th, Wisconsin Horticulture Update. I'm your host, Scott Royce, up in Marinette County officially, although serving O'Connell, Marinette, and Florence, doing a few things up in the UP yet. We'll go ahead and do a county roll call quick, although we'll probably have a few others join in, but we're going to wait with county reports, so let's just do a quick roll call just to see who's on to start with, and then we'll give everybody a chance to give us an update, but we're going to switch order around a little bit today and have specialist reports first. So quick roll call, moving from north to south. So I'm on from Marinette, BJ's on from Brown. So who else north of Highway 10 is online with us today? This is Heidi from St. Croix County. I'm guessing that's probably north of 10. Walt in Portage County is right on Highway 10. That'll work. How about the southern half of the state? Lisa Marquette County's on. Chrissy's here from Walworth County. Christy's here from Rock County. Barb and Jeannie and Margaret in Kenosha. Anne and Kristen in Waukesha. Well, we'll have another chance for counties to chime in when we get to the county reports, because like I said, we're going to do specialist report first because of a few time constraints this morning. So, Brian, if you want to lead off, we know you're on, and then we'll see if anybody else has joined in. Okay, thank you, Scott, and I appreciate you putting me on early. I'm actually at the Arborist meeting in Madison today, so I'm trying to do double duty here. Pretty busy week in the clinic, a lot of leaf diseases coming in on trees and shrubs, basically variations on anthracnose. Not too surprising given the amount of rain we had early in the growing season, just that the symptoms are really starting to exhibit right now. Some vascular wilt, including Dutch palm disease, and no oak wilt this week, but we had a very interesting Britishillium wilt sample this week, potentially a new host, at least I can't find it in the literature, on Leatherwood, that's Zirka, G-I-R-C-A. We will have to do Cux postulates on that one to confirm, but certainly we're able to isolate Verticillium from that particular host. Interestingly, this came from a yard where a woman in the Madison area has had chronic problems with Verticillium over the years, and she has submitted other samples of other plants. A very interesting cedar apple rust sample that came in on Thursday, certainly known as a host, but I don't see the disease on that particular host very often. It has beautiful leaf symptoms, the big yellow-orange spots, and it was fruiting quite nicely on the undersurface. A lot of root and crown rot issues on fruit trees, including apples, cherries, pears, plums, raspberries as well, and blueberries, so a variety of things like Phytophthora, Rhizoctonia pythium, and other root rot organisms involved in that. And then from a conifer standpoint, seeing some interesting diplodia popping up on spruce trees. I've seen this particular pathogen on that particular host in the past, but what I'm seeing are several samples that have come in where the very branch tips have died back and are kind of drooping or curled. And then when you look in that tissue, it's just filled with fruiting bodies of diplodia. I'm not sure exactly what's going on with that, whether it's an anomaly or something new that we're dealing with, but it's just an interesting observation that I've made in the past couple of weeks that we're seeing an increase of that pathogen on spruce. And this is not only blue spruce, but Black Hill spruce, Norway spruce, a variety of different types of spruces. And then in the vegetable arena, I did send you a report, Barb, on your broccoli. Amanda Gibbons and I both took a look at that, and we both agree that that's most likely crown gall. We had a basil sample that came in from Dane County with Downey Mildew. That's the first for me to see this season, although I know it's been out and active. And then additional late light cases, two that came in, one from Polk County and then one from St. Croix. So that's three that I've diagnosed in the clinic, although, again, that's been around, we know, for quite a while in the state. 
So that's about it for what I've been seeing in the clinic. Any questions from anyone? Brian, I know you're going to put that information in, but I think it would be useful for our discussion here for you just briefly talk about management with crown gall. Basically, an avoidance strategy, quite frankly, that organism has a very wide host range. It's a bacterial pathogen. I most commonly see it on woody ornamentals. Roses are quite susceptible. I do see it on fruit trees. Actually, it's not that unusual to see it on fruit trees. And like I said, it's got a very wide host range. So basically, avoiding susceptible hosts is probably the best management strategy. It was really interesting with broccoli because when you try to do a literature search for the disease on that particular host or just graphicas in general, you don't really find any reports of, oh, crown gall on broccoli or crown gall on cauliflower. The literature that you tend to pop up is where the organism has been used to transform the plant, so used for genetic engineering. So we know that the plants are potentially susceptible, but it doesn't really show up on the radar as a disease of importance. In fact, our compendium of brassica diseases doesn't even list it as a disease, but we know that those plants are potentially susceptible. So what you basically do is put in a non-host. And I will be sending you our, our fact sheet on that disease, and that will have some information on that. Okay. Well, it's in a raised bed, so... Replacement of soil would be one thing you could consider. Carefully decontaminate. Well, and that was that. my next question, then. How do we handle that contaminated soil? Then I would just move it to an area where you're not going to grow any sort of susceptible host. Keep in mind that agrobacterium can be pretty common in soil in general, so it's not as though it's a rare organism. But I would definitely keep it away from any place where you're likely to grow something that's susceptible. And what do you have in terms of the size to those raised beds? Is it just lumber? Yes. Yeah, then I would say a good soak with 10% bleach. You may want to do multiple treatments with that and then a good rinse after you're done. Or maybe just replace it. You can replace it as well if you have the wherewithal to do that, yes. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Brian, what did you find with that tomato I sent in earlier this week? Let me see if I have anything listed from your county. It may be one of those where... We didn't find anything disease-wise at all. It was a couple leaf specimens and several tomato fruit that kind of looked yeah. like late blight. Yeah, no indication. If it would have been late blight, you would have heard from us already. So it's probably still being processed. I can't remember specifically that sample. It may be that we thought it was bacterial, in which case we were isolating from it just to confirm which bacterium it might be. If we thought it was just fungal, then you should have a report on its way to you. But definitely no indication of late blight because that didn't show up on my report and it would have this week if it had been late blight. We would have sent out a report right away about that. Thank you. You're welcome. Brian, it's Chrissy. Any news on that garlic that we sent up? Yes, actually, we did send out a report on that. We found a lot of fusarium oxisperm in that. You most commonly see it as basal rot organism, although the basal blades in that garlic you sent us were pretty much intact that it looked as though it had gotten in through the stems and was causing the stems to rot off and weaken. And then we also recovered that from some of the cloves as well. So I think that's what was causing the problem in that particular case. And my suggestion for that would be simply any of the garlic that comes out, just infect it really well. And anything that's showing any sort of blemishes, don't use. They wanted to use that to plant the here, so they should just sell that off if they can. Yeah, I would not use that. And definitely don't sell it to anyone else as a planting stuff. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. We saw another sample that had something similar. It's actually an onion sample that had fusarium oxisperm. 
that particular sample showed it actually in the basal plate there was a lot of decay. But again, there may have been some injury to those garlic plants of some kind, and that probably provided an entry point. Although Fuderum axisterum is a pretty good pathogen in general. Any other questions? Okay, I'll turn it back over to you, Scott. Are there any other specialists online with us today other than Brian? You get to wait for a few minutes. Unless you have something that you want to talk about with the main crops of fruit that you'd rather talk about now and then get into your other stuff later. Nothing that comes to mind unless somebody has something out there that they've really noticed quite a bit on. Say, Brian, this is Kevin. I'm going to chime in here again on this apple tree decline. I know there's been a lot of discussion about this on and off over the last year and a half, but is there anything in general you want to provide us with, because a lot of times people don't want to hear that, oh, your apple tree died, we're not sure why, it must be the winter. Is there anything else you want to remind us about when dealing with these calls? Because I know we often think of the cambium tissue being killed off and some kind of girdling and that kind of stuff, but there's also root issues. And the other thing that's come up is this replant disease or disorder that we have to be aware of when replanting apple trees in the same hole or near vicinity. So could you just comment about that briefly? I guess the question is, are you talking to me, Brian Smith, or the other Brian? <laughs> well, I think you both have a possible role to play here. I think Brian H. has seen a lot of these samples come through his lab. The branches dying back and split bark, and they send it into the disease lab, and they think it's fire blight or some other pathogen. And I don't know, Brian H., how many of those samples come back as positive, but... My guess is we're not able to necessarily isolate any kind of pathogen, so therefore we're pointing our finger back at environmental issues. So I think you both have maybe something to say on this. Just thought, seeing we've got a little air time here to remind us about some of that. Well, I'll chime in then. The apple tree decline, apple replant disease, the problem with diagnosing some of these is that there are multiple organisms and environmental conditions that are involved in the manifestation. Just because we can't isolate one organism doesn't mean that maybe some of the other factors aren't involved in causing what we put in a general statement as being decline or replant. And there's everything from nematodes involved to fungi, Phytophthora, Rhizoctonia, Pythium, you name it. And they can all be involved at various levels. The one thing you look at, what are the obvious factors in the environment that might have contributed to those, like poor drainage, planted in a low site, heavy soils, heavy subsoils, maybe planting a cultivar that's not very winter-hardy. Those predispose the plant to the decline, and then you start seeing normally maybe other environmental conditions like rainfall and temperature wouldn't have much to do with it, but if you're in a borderline site, you get heavy rainfall, and then you get to fluctuating temperatures, no doubt you're going to start seeing the symptoms, and once they start, they are exacerbated, and they probably will carry through a lot faster than they would have if it had been on a much better site. The winter injury has been a huge factor. We see winter injury involved in plants, apple trees, and other fruit trees showing symptoms two, three years down the road. You get to a stressful point in time, just kind of like Dutch elm disease. You don't see it until the hottest, driest part of the summer a lot of times. Well, the symptoms on these trees, too, when they're under stress with heavy fruit load 
and maybe fluctuating conditions of drought, heat, and then cooler and wet, that sets it off. Apple replant disease is another complex where you really don't want to be planting the trees directly in the same site where they've been planted before. Now, the obvious suggestion here would be to plant right exactly in between where the rows were before, so you're offset as far as you can from where the roots and other issues were at hand in the previous orchard. But typically, when you're replanting an orchard, you're replanting with more dwarf trees, so then that becomes more of a problem. So finding a new site entirely and actually making sure that it's a prepared site, good soil, good drainage, those all contribute tremendously to the longevity of the trees. Is there a rootstock? I've heard Geneva out of New York is a preferred rootstock if you're doing the replanting. I know that gets a little bit more complex here, but is there rootstock considerations that we have good data to support? Unfortunately, we don't have enough good data on the Geneva rootstocks. Some of them look very promising, like 16 and 41 and some of the others. But when you've only got three, four, five years worth of data, that's not enough to be recommending them commercially. I know that there were some anecdotal evidence from some smaller commercial growers in the northern part of the state that suggested that some of their younger trees that they planted on a few of the Geneva rootstocks made it through the winter better than on even Budagowski 9 or on some of the more traditional M26, M7. But I'm not going to recommend them wholeheartedly yet. I'm just going to say that they look promising. Now, Bud 9 is fully winter hardy, and it's a full dwarf. And yes, it has its problems, but it's certainly far better than some of the others out there like Mulling 9 when it comes to the interaction of winter hardiness and some of these diseases becoming manifested. Thank you, Brian. I hope my colleagues out there don't mind this subject again, but I just thought Brian would be a good person to ask. And I don't know, Brian Huddleston, if you have any other comments based on what you've seen the last year or two. I think Brian had to head off to other meetings, so he probably isn't going to chime in. Oh, okay. Sorry about uh, hogging the line here, Scott. Not nah, fruits is fruits. That's right. Let's take a break from fruits just for a bit, though, and do a county update. And actually, Kevin, since you're the farthest northwest, why don't you lead off and we'll go from northwest to southeast sure. today. Sure. Well, obviously, tree decline, I'm still getting those calls. That's why I brought this up again. And I just thought Brian would be a good person to remind us of his experiences with that. We're doing fine up here as far as moisture, but it's gotten hotter, and we've gotten a lot of leaf disease questions here this past week. Mostly the blights and the spots and some root issues on vegetables, whether it's fusarium or verticillium, it's hard to say, but plants just kind of wilting and going in decline. Insects, not a whole lot of activity there. Uh, I did take a call from somebody in Cumberland about Japanese beetles, the true Japanese beetle. We do not have Japanese beetle, at least to my knowledge, in Burnett, Washburn, or Sawyer counties, thank heavens. But it just reminded me that they're at our doorstep, and hopefully they stay there. I guess that's about it for me, you know, pretty typical stuff coming in. Thanks. So, okay, why don't we head south but stay on the western side and go with St. Croix? All right, Heidi here from St. Croix County. 
I had one of the late blight cases that Brian talked about earlier. It's very unfortunate. Took out a whole chunk of potatoes and tomatoes in my garden. Other than that, I've gotten a few calls on spotted wings still. There's people out there picking raspberries. We're kind of between season on raspberries, but they're at the end of one and the beginning of another, and they're still seeing some issues with that, so giving advice on that. And Japanese beetle, I've got a few calls coming in on that, and I had a sample come in. Somebody brought a Japanese beetle in that was on an apple tree. Other than that, it's been a fairly quiet week. We're still pretty dry up here. We could definitely use some rain. It's not going to rain until Saturday. The good thing about that is that the lawn is not growing, and I love that. I think that's about it on this end of the state. Anybody else on the western side of life? Erin from Eau Claire is here. We have a lot of tree decline things coming in, too, from just cosmetic leaf spot stuff to possible oak wilt and a lot of the fruit trees. You're hearing a lot about the apple trees, too. I've seen Japanese beetle here, but I have gotten no calls on it, so that's good. That's probably about the second year in a row now that the calls are pretty much at zero. We do have a second, I think it's a second generation of cabbage maggots and those kind of coal crop bugs flying around in our teaching garden. We have a lot of eggs on the coal crops, trying to get the word out to people to at least get out there and scout for things. We had a little blossom end rot in the teaching gardens too, but no reports of it from anybody else, but lots of report of early blight coming in from people. Lawns have slowed down growing too here, even though we've had enough moisture and it's really hot here. It's okay. Anybody else further west than the center of the state? Trisha in Jackson County is on. A lot of similar situations. A lot of tree decline questions continuing from last year still. Victoria leaf spot on tomato. I just sent in a sample. It looks suspicious for oak wilt. So we'll see. That was last week, so I'm waiting to hear back on that. Okay, then how about the center of the state? We know Portage and Marquette are on, those two, and then anybody else in the center? This is Walt in Portage County. We've had some nice rain this week. I registered 2.2 on my rain gauge on Monday. Several calls for Japanese beetle this week. People are starting to get excited about that. Weed ID, several of those this week, and some interesting weed ID stuff. I enlisted Mark and Laura a couple times to take care of that. I've got some to send in to Mark today yet. And I found some red thread in lawn, so there's some nice patchy stuff that kind of turns pink in the grass. So that's been interesting so far the last couple of weeks also. That's what I got. This is Lisa Marquette. We've had a lot of similar questions come up as to what's already been mentioned, the general tree decline questions. It's pretty dry in Marquette County. We got a little bit of rain last week. wasn't nearly enough. A lot of the ground for lawns is going brown, the grass is going dormant because we just don't have that moisture retention in our soils in the sandy area here, so we've been seeing that. Other than that, relatively quiet week. Okay, anybody else in the central sands, etc.? Okay, otherwise I'll head out and then we'll move north to south along the eastern seaboard and hit the southeast and south. Lots of fun stuff up here, as everybody else is saying, all kinds of tree issues, all kinds of issues, etc., with diseases. Dry in some spots, wet in others. The southern half of the county got drenched yesterday afternoon, and the northern half didn't get a drop, and it's been like that all year, so lots of stuff like that. Caught my first SWD yesterday up here, so they're finally showing up, although still haven't caught a lot of the ag pests, because it's been kind of one of those years. Nothing 
exceptionally unusual beyond that, so I'll just leave it at that. VJ, you want to head off then and Brown? Sure, Scott. Finally, we got some rain this week. For the past more than two, three weeks, it's been pretty dry, but this past weekend we got it. The grass has sprung back again. It looks so green. With the rain comes a lot of diseases. People are complaining a lot about slime molds in their lawn and the mulch, wondering what those things are. People are witnessing a lot of powdery mildew on their cucurbit plants, pumpkins, zucchinis, those kind of stuff. A lot of questions regarding to blossom end rot and growth cracks on tomatoes. Also on bacterial specs on tomatoes seems to be more prominent this year. People are witnessing quite a bit of wasp and bees activity. Some of the wasps are building some nests behind their garage door or in a concealed areas in the building and wondering how to control those things. We did get some calls regarding to magnolia scales, which has been very prominent again this year. And again, some tree decline type of questions, people noticing sudden branch wilting on many ornamental trees, wondering what's happening now. So we sent some samples to Brian for testing for some verticillium wilt, or is it simply a general tree decline kind of things. That's pretty much about it. You want to just keep on heading south then? This is Ann from Outagamie County. I didn't check in earlier, but I just wanted to say that I've gotten some calls about bees and how to get rid of them, how to control them. I also had water hemp that was in someone's soybeans, and I'm not quite sure why I got the call, but I did. And the amount of Roundup it had to apply was phenomenal, and it still kept coming back. That is a huge, huge weed, and it sounds like it's really impacting a lot of the agriculture crops. And we got an inch and a half of rain in the rain gauge outside, but to be honest, I'm not exactly sure when the last time was it was emptied, but I think that's accurate, and we got one and a half inches from that last rainstorm. And that's all I have. Southeast corner, want to chime in, or southeast and south? Well, this is Chrissy from Walworth County, and I don't have very much more to report than anybody else said. The only thing that we've had come up in a massive amount is scale, and I drove around Fontana down here in Walworth County on Lake Geneva there, and I honestly couldn't see one yard without either city mold on all the plants or that shininess covering the landscape. So just about every sort of tree, and I've talked with PJ yesterday when we were at the field day, and he says it's gone bonkers a little bit, but it's just a big problem down here in the center of our county. It's on people's decks, it's on people's cars, everything. The honeydew is just covering everything from the crawlers coming out. Christy and Rock County. I haven't been in the office a lot this week, but it sounds very similar to a lot of what other people are saying. We haven't had solid rain since, I think, July 18th. So we had a few promising storms, and then they just passed us. So that means that all the grass is kind of browning now, which is good for people not having to mow their lawns, but it would be great to have some moisture. Grass is dying. I mean, the other plants are being affected. Otherwise, mostly tree issues, as others have stated. Hey, Barb in Kenosha, the only thing I'll add is with the slowdown in the lawn growth, we're seeing more rust disease on the lawns and samples with that. In fact, we even sent a sample for the rust study that Paul Cook sent out the information on earlier this week. That's it here. This is Kristen. I don't think we have grass alive enough to actually host rust anymore. It's seriously dry here. I would say that we've had maybe one rain since 4th of July. So not surprisingly, the most common things I'm seeing is I'm seeing a ton of scorch now. Lots of the maples and things just driving down the road. You can see the edges of them are all brown and crispy. Lots and lots of weeds. 
I think mostly because the grass is dead, well, dormant, and they're really going good. Tons of invasive stuff coming in, people wanting to know what it is. I think once the grass dies, they see everything a little bit more clearly. And then the coolest thing I saw this week was bacterial spot on peach, which was really, really cool. A gentleman decided to plant a peach tree where it got less than six hours of sunlight and isn't quite sure why it's not doing well, so we talked through that. I think that covers everybody that I had that I know sounded off so far today, but are any other counties online before we move on to novelty fruits? This Walton Portage County, I just had a question. What are folks doing about all the scale that they're finding, or what is there to do? Well, when I was talking with PJ yesterday, he says there's really not that much to do because it's such on a large scale, no pun intended there, but it's covering all these huge oaks and huge half berries and almost every tree that I saw it was on, so at least that I could get to. So he said you could use systemics and things like that, but obviously that's not the case right now, but he said he suspects that some of the beneficials aren't out there at the same time the crawlers are, so there's a little bit of an imbalance going on. So sent an email with some stomachs and stuff like that, but I just don't think that's realistic in the, how much there is right now. Thank you. Yeah, and he listed several different. He said magnolia scale was really bad, lacania scale. Then he also says there could be specific scales, like on tulip trees, that could have a specific scale on there. So that's all the information I got. I've had several calls on maple trees, and I've got several oaks of my own that are looking a little bit sad with all the scale on them. Yeah, and I think down here the scale is secondary compared to how much sap and sticky stuff is covering everything. My truck is so sticky you can't hardly let go of it. Okay, well, hearing no other county reports then, we will turn things over to Brian Smith for a while. If anybody joined us after Brian Huddleston announced this earlier, Brian sent out an email 8-15 this morning with Brian Smith's slides that he's going to be talking through here now. So with that, we'll turn it over to Brian Smith. We can talk for a while on novelty fruits for Wisconsin. Hi, everybody. See, I'm just going to gloss through some of these. I'm going to watch my time and try to wrap this up about 20, 25 after, so we still have some time at the end to do what's normally done. Kind of interesting, the term novelty can mean different things to different people. And one example in my second slide of why grow fruit in the home garden, I've got a picture of a cranberry. Well, what could be more common commercially in Wisconsin for fruit crops than cranberry? But most people don't really realize that it can be easily grown in the home yard as a nice ground cover and providing some good fruit. Typically, though, novelty fruits are not available at the grocery store. So that's why we have to grow them as gardeners to get what we think would be great for a site, whether it be really droughty, choose some of these really tough fruits from the Great Plains, some of them that are really drought tolerant. So they typically have quite a bit of landscaping aspects to them as far as aesthetics go. And we all know that, well, most of them can be made into jelly in some way or other, right? How many people make jelly? But, hey, that's good. And also wine. And then the next slide, determining which fruit cultivar to plant. Well, one of the big things on any fruit, whether it's novelty or not, is does it have disease resistance and flavor? Most of the novelty fruits don't have a lot of flavor as such, a lot of them require some kind of processing, but not all. 
So we'll take a look at a few throughout the slides. There's other traits that we would look at in major fruit crops that are grown in the home garden, like apples, and we can apply that to novelty fruits, like does it have late blooms so it doesn't get frosted? Does it have a storage life? Does it have the typical ornamental qualities? The next area there, has it been tested thoroughly in my area? Well, probably not. If it's new or novelty, then most people don't grow it, and there's probably a reason for it. Either it is just being introduced into an area, or it's been around for a long time, never really caught on commercially, and therefore a lot of nurseries don't carry it. So usually a tough situation trying to find a source. Novelty fruits, though, are becoming more popular. That's why I'm sure some of the agents had requested this topic. And I'm happy to report that there have been some funded projects over the years. Dale Secker at Carindale Farm down in Oregon, Wisconsin, has been really involved probably the most of any person in the state, I believe. I was there from the beginning helping him out design this project. It was started out as an ADD grant, and he has planted just hundreds of different fruits. He's got a website that I've got their reference to. It's not a hot link, but website and also through CS. The other thing that we see that for adaptation on novelty fruits is the fact that is it really adapted? And more and more of these novelty fruits are being offered through nurseries without being thoroughly tested. Everybody wants to get a piece of the pie for royalties on patents and there's not nearly so much emphasis on thoroughly testing before they're offered sale to the public. And most of you are aware about winter hardiness zones, obviously. These are kind of stretched, I think, sometimes on the descriptions on some of these novelty fruits where we really are in zone 3B where I'm at in River Falls, and it says 4, 4A on the hardiness zone map. So there's lots of variations, obviously, with topography and how these novelty fruits will adapt. One of the things that I'd like to look at, since we were talking about not having to mow lawns, well, nobody likes to have to maintain fruit crops any more than lawns, and I'm happy to report that on the next slide, the maintenance aspects that are needed, just about all the fruits that I will mention today are low maintenance, minimum maintenance. They need very few sprays. They're usually very tolerant to stressful conditions. So that kind of leads me right into black chokeberry or aronia. Thank goodness the commercial industry calls it aronia berry because I don't think too many of the public would like chokeberry. But they have been an ornamental for many years for landscaping industry. But the Russians and the Polish had gotten a hold of some of our germplasm back about 100 years ago, and they developed cultivars like Viking and Nero that have two to three to four times the size fruit as many of the landscape specimens. This is a up-and-coming commercial fruit in Wisconsin. We've probably got about 300 acres now and it's all going to be going into processing. So you can read through some of the different varieties or cultivars there, but my top pick is Viking, of course, because of the big fruit. Next one on the list is buffalo berry or silver buffalo berry. It is native to the Great Plains. I remember seeing it. I'm native to South Dakota, so I remember seeing it out on the western 
part of South Dakota. It is very tough, drought-resistant, and rich in lycopene, which is usually associated with orange or red pigments, and it has high antioxidant levels. It doesn't get real large, and it actually tastes fairly decent just to eat out of hand, which I can't say for many of these fruits. So it does seem to have a lot of potential. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the presentation, the next slide, cranberries, as long as you provide the organic matter, the full sun, the level of moisture, and acidic pH, you can grow cranberries in matted rows kind of like strawberries and cover them for the winter. They are very fun to grow in the backyard. One of my top favorites, both in my home yard and I'd love to see it go commercial, would be the clove currant. Now, most people know about red and white currants and black currants. Well, clove currant is a type of black currant, but it's way better tasting to eat out of hand than a normal black currant. And it has just an exceptional fragrance in the spring that smells just like cloves. And the one that I've got in my garden has fruited every year. Very productive and makes the most fantastic juices, jellies, even wine out of it. It is amazing, called Crandall. Elderberries have brought up some more interest along the way. There's been new ones that have been introduced recently. One of my friends that has been working on elderberries down in Missouri has released Wildwood, which is a very vigorous and very large fruited specimen along with there's some other ones out there, Bob Gordon and Marge on slide 16. Those are all superior, in my estimation, by reading some of these descriptions as compared to the old Adams, Johns, Nova, and York. I've grown some of the more ornamental elderberries, but I can't say that many of them are that great. They really need some special care. They're not overly winter-hardy, these black lace, black beauty. So they've got to be in a protected spot and give them plenty of moisture. Most of them don't fruit. A few of them do, but it's mainly just for the purple foliage and pink flowers. Gooseberries, again, I'm not going to spend much time because they're kind of halfway novelty, halfway typical commercial, pretty common. But I did want to mention that most of them are very tolerant of gardening conditions, home yards, usually taking a little bit of shade. And my favorite is Hinamaki Red. You know if it can make it commercially, it's going to be great for the backyard, too. One of my favorite up-and-coming crops for the home garden are hascaps or honeyberries. I took a trip to North Dakota last year at the Carrington Research Station Field Day, and they've been testing some honeyberries, and Bob Boers up in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, has been breeding these honeyberries. There's just a whole series of new ones coming out. They are in the honeysuckle family, and they bloom extremely. Extremely early, but a lot of times they don't seem to get frosted that badly. Even in North Dakota, you know, if you can grow them there and get fruit, that's a pretty good endorsement for growing them in Wisconsin, and certainly even up in Saskatoon also with their new varieties coming out. I'm not going to go over each one of these by any stretch of the imagination, but at least you have some of the background information on some of these major honeyberry cultivars that are coming out. 
Likewise, in Juneberries in Saskatoon, since I'm kind of on the Canadian aspect here with Bob Boers up in Saskatoon, Juneberries, also known as service berries in Saskatoons, are growing commercially on a quite a large scale, thousands of acres in Canada. And there's a few growing commercially in Wisconsin in the upper Midwest, but they are also very nice for the home yard. There's some pretty compact dwarf ones like Regent, and then there's some very tall ones that get up to 20 feet. But again, it's kind of a resurgence of interest in Saskatoon. They're known as the poor man's blueberry, and they are more tolerant of alkaline soils and drought. Some of the newer ones that have been released are Princess Diana, Princess William, or Prince William, I'm sorry, Martin, and Lee Number 8, and, of course, Fergie. So lots of ties to England there. Yostaberry, slide 33. All I can say there is it's a hybrid between blackcurrant and gooseberry. I've tried to grow several of them over the years. Never had any success. Have never seen them fruiting with any success anywhere I've seen them growing. Kiwi, a lot of the researchers are working on hardy kiwis now, even the University of Minnesota and Michigan State University. So I think there's a good opportunity for these new hardy kiwis to come online and be able to be growing. Most of them are going to be hybrids between various species, and you can read about some of these interesting red and green ones like Anna and Ken's Red, and there's even one called Michigan State. I've got down there where some of the sources are that you can find these hardy kiwis. Mulberry, I had a slide here of Northrop Mulberry. It's no longer available. One of my favorite nurseries, St. Lawrence Nursery, shut down after this spring, and they might restart after two or three years, but they were the source of a lot of these novelty fruits. But the mulberries in general, I know people have given them a bad name because of all the bird issues and so forth, but, man, uh, mulberries are hardy probably up to the middle part of the state. We can grow a few of them around here, even in Pierce County. There are red ones and black ones and white ones, and some of the selections out there should be tested further. Some of them are actually quite hardy and very productive. Most of them are dioecious, meaning they're separate male and female plants, so you got to make sure you have a male plant with some of the females. There are some perfect flowered ones also. Last one on the list, sea buckthorn or sea berry. These are really pretty astringent to eat out of hand. Again, one of those things you'd want to do some processing on, but nothing much tougher. If you can get them established, there are separate female and male plants, so you always got to have a male with usually three or four female plants that you'd want to plant. But if you're trying to keep your neighbors out of your yard, this is the one to plant. Giant thorns get 10 to 12 feet tall. I've got a few suggested cultivar names from ones that are introduced from Canada, and I think they have a lot of potential. I know Dale Secker has tried a few of these down in Oregon, Wisconsin, and thought they had quite a bit of potential, and also high antioxidants, good anti-cancer agents. So I'm going to leave it open for just a few questions so we can wrap it up. Brian, this is Lisa. I have a question on something that you actually didn't mention because it's one of those newer, up-and-coming cultivars of plants that probably hasn't been real thoroughly tested yet, the goji berry. Oh, yes. The goji berry 
does not appear to be as winter hardy as what most people had claimed it was. I would say that's a borderline zone five. I've never heard of anybody being able to successfully grow it except in southern Wisconsin, and then it's kind of sporadic from year to year what it does, but it will not tolerate the northern half of the state for sure. Thank you. What's Brainer. the word on thimbleberry? Thimbleberry is one of those that is more related to the Pacific Northwest. It gets some of the same problems as raspberries and blackberries, so usually not overly successful. They like a little bit cooler summer. I think somebody else had a question out there, too. Yeah, are any of these tolerant of part shade? Any of them have any kind of shade tolerance? Well, I do know that thimbleberry is, and the kiwis definitely need some special care when they're getting established. They need a lot of protection in their first couple of years, and then when they finally get established, then they become almost rampant. I know I've read some literature that in Michigan, they were worried about some of these kiwis actually taking over entire trees and smothering them. Interesting. Yeah. Brian, how many years does it take for the honeyberries to reach its full productivity? It usually takes about four to five years. They will start when they're pretty young. I know I've even got some in pots in my nursery that I'm going to put out a small replicated trial, and they already had some fruit on them. But the ones in Carrington, North Dakota, actually were doing pretty well at year three and seem to be in full production by year five. Okay. We've been trying the tundra and borealis. It's been a second year. It bloomed this spring, but we never had any fruit yet. Well, they do bloom awfully early, and I know that some of them are fairly frost-tolerant, their blooms, but I know some of the older ones are not so good. I know that they had some pretty sporadic production on some of the older varieties there in North Dakota. Okay. And the Josta berry seems to be performing well in Green Bay. We planted it last year, and we hardly had any snow cover till mid-January. And this year we had a quite a bit of decent size of fruits from Joe Berry. It has a sweet and sour kind of taste to it, but the growth performances seems to be phenomenal. Oh, yeah, they will grow pretty well. It's just I've never seen them have much fruit, but I'm glad to hear you have some success there. That's certainly an endorsement because they are pretty winter hardy. Yeah, we did harvest some fruits even from the second year. So Good. Do you have any other currants or ribes around as pollinizers? Yes, we do have both uh, gooseberries and currants oh, yeah. nearby, so that kind of helps. We have both uh, red and black currant. Oh, uh, yeah. The black currant should work pretty well as a pollinizer if they're overlapping in bloom time. Yeah. And the fruits are like the size of a gooseberry, a little bit bigger than the size of a gooseberry, and it doesn't have any spines to it, any thorns, so that's a good thing. That is. Brian, this is Christy, and for those that are going to be listening to this as a podcast, just a quick question. My file and fruit in my brain is fairly small. Do any of these, from what I know, elderberry needs to be cooked before you can consume it. Do any of these other fruits need to be processed or cooked, or can they just all be eaten out of hand? Well, there's quite a few that could be eaten out of hand, but whether you'd want to is a different story. Like, I could just quickly go through these. Chokeberry, you don't want to eat by hand. Buffalo berry, it's okay. 
Even cranberries, obviously, no good to eat out of hand. Clove currants, I definitely eat those out of hand. They're pretty darn good. They've got a special complex flavor, and they're not astringent like most of the other black currants. They're way better. Elderberries, again, yeah, you got to process them. Of all this group, probably if you had the time and patience to grow gooseberries and try a lot of cultivars, man, they are a connoisseur's delight. One of my grower friends from Iowa who grows a series of gooseberry cultivars commercially, he actually sent me up a sample tray overnight mail a couple of years ago, and they were just phenomenal. Honeyberries can be eaten out of hand. They're pretty darn good, a little bit tart, but not bad. Juneberries are very mild to eat out of hand. They're fine for that. Kiwis the same way, and if you can get mulberries, wow, they're very mild and can be very tasty and sweet. See, buckthorn, no, though. Brian, are there any of these that have potential invasiveness? You know, anytime we hear buckthorn, we're like, oh, oh, how might that play out? Most of these I've also checked off because of non-invasive potential. You might notice I didn't have autumn olive on there, and that has got a lot of potential as a fruit crop, but it's also highly invasive, so I suggest not using autumn olive. None of these others that I see are really invasive to any degree at all. No. And they're all resistant to SWD, right? (laughs) <laughs> Not been checked for that, I would guess virtually none of them are. <laughs> it all depends on what's going to be more attractive to the SWD, and I'm guessing most of these fruits are going to be far less attractive than some of our normal, very succulent, larger fruits that are available, but not to say you wouldn't get SWD and elderberry and buffalo berry. Probably has caps, too. I think Juneberry is way too early where you wouldn't get them in that yet. We usually, in most parts of the state, don't see SWD in strawberries yet. So if it ripens before then, you're probably in pretty good shape at least for a while. Anybody else questions? Any last questions for Brian before we reach our time frame? Okay, hearing none specific to that. Any other last questions or events that people want to publicize or opportunities that people need help with or anything else like that? Okay, Scott, I'm going to do my last pitch for our Twilight Garden Tour. I've talked about it the last couple of weeks, but this coming Tuesday, if you're anywhere close to Spooner, Aaron, huh? hint, hint, Heidi, hint, hint, Brian Smith, Dave Slezak from River Falls, a rose breeder, ornamental guy. We've got somebody from University of Minnesota from the Joint Monarch Project talking about pollinators and then Beth Hanna with the Wisconsin School Garden Initiative will be coming up as well. So those are our featured speakers for Tuesday, 4 p.m. to dusk. And then in St. Croix County, just a quick one, on Thursday the 20th, I have my Urban Tree ID and Selection course, which Dr. Laurel Jarrell will be coming up and teaching, and we'll be having that as a morning classroom and an afternoon tree walk at the University of River Falls there. Anything else from anybody? Okay. Thanks, everybody, for joining in today. It was a good discussion, and thanks particularly to Brian for leading the primary discussion. Next week's horticulture update is going to focus on butterfly gardening. Mark Dwyer of Rotary Gardens is the planned primary guest. Tricia Wagner will be hosting from the Jackson County office next week. So with that, everybody have a great 
relatively warm weekend, and hopefully we'll get some more rain out of this system. Everybody have a great weekend. Take care.